Please look at your Bible here in Mark chapter 3. And while you're turning there, we can please stand for reading of God's word this morning. Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, he never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saved, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? And my brothers, and looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. But whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, and my sister, and mother. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon this reading. Lord, come to us in the person of your Holy Spirit. Take this text, open our eyes to see the truth of it, the meaning of it. Most importantly, open our eyes to see the glory of Christ in it, so that we would be changed forever by looking upon our Savior in the pages of Scripture. We ask this in His name. Amen. As a local church pastor, I, I made myself available to the area of funeral homes to officiate funerals for families who may not have pastors for whatever reason. And just early last week, I was thinking how long it had been since I had to do funerals. That's probably what happened. I got a call last Thursday for a family in need of a pastor here locally. And so yesterday I officiated my first funeral in about four months, which is really unheard of. I guess the first one I've done since, uh, since Bruce. And once again, as with every funeral, 
I was reminded that when we draw our last breath, as every dying human being has done before us for thousands of years, the only thing that will matter is how we responded to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Not the Jesus of the skeptical internet blogs. Not the Jesus of Time Magazine or the History Channel. Not the Patriot Jesus or the Progressive Jesus of American politics. Not the Jesus of religious pluralism where all roads lead to heaven. But how have we responded to the Jesus of sacred scripture? You see, friends, this book makes certain claims. Claims that refuse to be scrutinized and critiqued by a fallible human intellect and rationalism. And its central claim, above all others, is that there is a breach between our Creator and us. A breach called sin. And our infinitely holy Creator cannot simply sweep our sin under the cosmic rug and just pretend like it's no big deal. Sin must be dealt with significant consequences. And you and I, as finite beings, are incapable of satisfactorily dealing with our own sin so that we satisfy the infinite righteousness of God. It's impossible for us to do. That's why hell is forever. Because we will never be able to atone for our sin against an infinitely righteous God. Therefore, God Himself must do something on our behalf or we're forever lost. That is the truth. And in His grace, He has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. He lived an absolutely sinless life. One like you and I could never in our wildest imaginations have any hope to live. Not a single lustful thought as a male. Not a single moment of pride or jealousy or envy. Not even a fraction of a second of unrighteous anger or self-centeredness. Everything that you and I consider to be those minor, tolerable, acceptable sins that we live with, they are utterly abhorrent to an infinitely holy God and His Son, Jesus Christ, never fell to these temptations, though He was tempted just like you and me. He lived a sinless life and then He surrendered His sinless life to death on the cross. A death that He did not deserve. So that all those who do deserve the death that He didn't deserve could receive the forgiveness that we don't deserve. He was raised from the dead three days later and then after 40 days ascended into heaven. Leaving His people with the promise to return at the end of redemptive history and finally and ultimately undo all the damage 
that sin has done to his creation. This is the person and work of a very real, very historical man named Jesus Christ. And it is the central claim of the Bible. The book that may very well sit in your lap this morning. So I don't want to argue today about whether this Jesus was man, myth, or legend. I want to talk about the internet conspiracy theories that claim that his story is just some copy of another mythological figure in ancient history. I want to talk about any of that foolishness. We know better than that. Everybody who writes that stuff knows better than that. I want to simply lay before us the truth that how we respond to this man, Jesus Christ, will have eternal consequences. Eternal means forever without end. And one of the reasons that we don't consider eternity very much is that our minds can scarcely conceive at all. We have absolutely no framework in which to understand something that lasts forever because everything we know comes to an end. But eternity is forever, friends. And so the gravity of the choice before each and every one of us today is immeasurable. We take every breath not appreciating the weight of those breaths in our lives. Like they could be our very last one. And how we have responded to this man that we read about today, that we read his voice in the pages of Scripture from the screen this morning, how we respond to Jesus Christ is the most important thing that any of us will ever grapple with. And our text here in Mark 3 really sets before us this very question, almost in the form of a drama in three scenes. And I want us to work through this passage just like that, a drama in three scenes. Let's begin with scene one, which is the concern of Christ's family. Verse 20 picks right up where we left off last week. Jesus has already stirred up the religious crowd by making all kinds of claims to be divine, that they would have considered to be, but they, they understand what he's saying. We may not get it, but when Jesus makes the claim to be a the Lord over the Sabbath or to be able to forgive sin, they understood. He's claiming to be divine. He already stirred them up. His popularity is growing with people because he heals people. But the opposition against him is growing as well. And he had just retreated to the mountain to call 12 men to his side as formal disciples. And now verse 20 begins the scene. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. So Jesus and his disciples are now back home in Capernaum, most likely the house of Simon Peter, which was essentially the home base for his ministry. The crowd had once again gathered, and the house was once again packed. Just like it was in Mark 2 when the friends of the paralytic had to tear through the roof to get their friend out to see Jesus, to be healed. And there wasn't even room for Jesus and his newly called 12 disciples to eat. 
Imagine that. Imagine your house being so full. Wasn't even space to eat. Word of this crowd and this chaos that surrounded Jesus got back to his family in Nazareth, where he was originally was from, and they were concerned. Verse 21, look at it again. An amazing verse. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They were saying he was out of his mind. The word seize here means to, to arrest. They wanted to come arrest Jesus. They wanted to gain control of him and bring him back home to Nazareth. Now, this was an, this was an honor, shame culture, okay? And the actions and the reputations, the reputation of Jesus would have had a significant impact on the rest of the family. So perhaps, perhaps the family of Jesus were a little embarrassed by how infamous he was becoming. The religious crowd didn't like him. People chased him everywhere he went. Or perhaps his family was, maybe they were concerned for the actual welfare of Jesus, being constantly surrounded by these crowds and constantly harassed. But either way, they they felt like they needed to get involved before things got really out of control. They said in verse 21, he's out of his mind. Now that's a pretty bold statement to make about the Son of God, isn't it? And it certainly shows that even his own family didn't really understand who he was. John 7, verse 5, says that not even his brothers believed in him. And so now they are on their way to Capernaum to stage an intervention. You ever had someone in your family or perhaps a close friend whose life was just so out of control that you had to just show up at their house, perhaps with other people even, that loved them and cared about them, to show up at their house and just take control of their situation? Maybe someone hooked on drugs or someone living a raucous lifestyle that would eventually lead to their death if someone doesn't intervene. <laughs> and though his life did in fact lead to his death. It was not because of out of control living. It was his radical claims to be divine, to be able to forgive sin, to, to be one with the Father like we read this morning from John, to be the I am that existed before Abraham. That when he said that, it, it, drove, it drove the Jews crazy. Before Abraham was, I am Jesus. That is the kind of claims that got him nailed to the cross. Maybe you've never had to stage an intervention in your loved one's life, but if you have that one person in the family who always says things, that starts an argument, that creates those awkward moments that you wish they would just keep quiet. You're the one that show up at Christmas and Thanksgiving and they want to bring up politics. Or perhaps maybe you're like, like my wife, who has an unpredictable preacher for a husband who sends out warnings about his upcoming sermons. And then she's sitting through those uncomfortable moments thinking he has lost his mind. 
My wife has thought I've been crazy for years. <laughs> Wait, you guys know that being a pastor's wife is the hardest job in the church. <laughs> Every church budget are including weekly psychotherapy for the pastor's wife. <laughs> Especially this guy. <laughs> the family of Jesus thought that he was, he was crazy. He had lost his mind. What about you this morning? What do you think of Jesus? Are you uncomfortable or embarrassed by the claims of Christ? Perhaps the very bold claim of Jesus to be the way, the truth, the life, and the one who holds exclusive access to God and eternal life. Friends, that kind of claim is way out of sync with the pluralistic, relativistic, religious ideology of our modern culture that refuses to say anybody's wrong except the person who says you're wrong. This is the dilemma that our text presents to us this morning. How will we respond to Jesus these bold claims. When we try to stage an intervention, I watch a lot of apologetic, you know, apologists, these, these guys who do the apologetic ministry, and I don't, I'm not knocking them. We all need to be good apologists for, for the truth. Sometimes it feels to me like they're just trying to stage an intervention. They're trying to rescue Jesus. They're trying to rescue the Bible from the radical claims that it contains. Just let it out. The power is in the Word, not our ability to, to explain it scientifically. The power is here. His preaching, his teaching. Stand on it. How are we going to respond to Christ? Let's move to scene two. The confrontation with faith leaders. Mark has this. Uh, it, it, when, you, when we read this passage, when you were standing a few moments ago, and we read it, I read it out loud. It actually, I was jarred yet once again at how there's this discontinuity because Mark starts with his, his family and then he jumps to this other scene and then he ends with his family again. Someone's like, Mark, what are you trying to do? You see, Mark uses a, a very unique literary feature where he will start one episode and then jump to another episode in the middle and then return to the original episode with resolution. It, it, has a, it has a dramatic, jarring effect on the readers, and that's what he's doing here. So with the family of Jesus making the journey from Nazareth to Capernaum to study this intervention, Mark then he fills the passage of time with yet another confrontation between Jesus and a group of religious leaders. Scribes. The scribes were essentially PhDs in the law of God. We might even call them in the parlance of our own day faith leaders. A lot of talk about faith leaders today. Unfortunately, the faith leaders of our day are just as corrupt and opposed to the truth of Christ as the scribes were here in this passage. Look at verse 22. This is what he said about the Son of God. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, probably a delegation to check Jesus out. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed 
by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. You see what Mark doesn't tell us here? Matthew does. Matthew 12, verse 22, we read that Jesus had just performed yet another exorcism on a man who had been born blind, or who was blind and unable to speak. And when the scribes heard about it, they couldn't deny the reality of his power. The man who was deaf or unable to speak and mute and blind now could speak and see. They couldn't deny that. But they refused to attribute this power of God, of Jesus to God, so they said, ah, His power comes from Beelzebub, which is an ancient name of a pagan deed that came to be used for Satan himself. It literally means Lord of the Flies. And so now, like his family who claimed that Jesus was out of his mind, the faith leaders of his day made an even more remarkably wicked and disturbing claim about the Son of God, who's a demon possessed. By the way, in ancient, in this ancient culture, insanity and demon possession were often closely linked. Now, Jesus could have, he could have any more described we could have avoided the confrontation, but look at verse 23. There's a, a, a little line here that jumped out to me when I was reading this. Verse 23. And he called them, the scribes, he called them to him and said to them. You see, Jesus wasn't going to let this one go. They made a direct assault, not only on his own character, but on the work of the Holy Spirit that empowered his ministry. And he had to confront them. And friends, far too often in the church today, we are letting direct assaults on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ go unanswered because we don't want to be controversial. The world out there says all sorts of blasphemous things about our Lord and we just keep silent. Some things are worth not letting go. What the scribes said about Jesus here in this passage required a response. And as he frequently did, he responded to his opposition with a question in verse 23 again. He called to them and said to them in parables, how can, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided. He cannot stand but is coming to an end. So if Christ's power over Satan came from Satan, then Satan was doing he, he was working to destroy himself. But of course that wasn't happening. And thus the folly of the scribes was fully exposed and on display. The kingdom of Satan was, in fact, under assault. But not from within. Look at the parable in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then he may plunder his house. Who's the strong man? 
Satan. Satan is the strong man. This world is his realm. And Jesus is the one who is stronger than the strong man. He is the one who has come to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. And he did it for these spectacular healings and these exorcisms. He entered the realm of Satan and plundered his goods. He set free those captive to the dominion of Satan. You know, this should have been clear to the faith leaders of his day, but instead they accused him of being demon-possessed. This was an incredibly blasphemous claim. And so Jesus says in verse 28, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they will say he has an unclean spirit. Now this is a passage that has wreaked all kinds of havoc on theologians and Christians for a very long time. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is it? How can this be unforgivable? Jesus says the scribes are committing it. What they call what he called the eternal sin, placing them beyond forgiveness. Blasphemy, it means to, to speak against. It's a verbal assault. And the scribes blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they attribute the, the power of the, the work of Christ to the power of Satan. When in truth, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. They took what was infinitely righteous and called it wicked. That's what verse 30 means when Mark says, For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Mark is, is telling us exactly what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is and how the scribes did it. They accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan. And in truth, he was empowered by the Spirit of God. And that's why, friends, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Not because it's it's one single act or some slip up of speech that we make and that magically flips the switch of forgiveness from on to off. It's not it at all. This sort of verbal assault on the character of Christ, essentially the character of the Spirit of Christ, reflects a complete and ultimate rejection of the person and work of Christ as mediated to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Everything that we see of Christ comes to us by the work of the Spirit. So there can be no forgiveness because this kind of accusation emerges from a heart that is so hard-hearted in rejection against Christ that it is beyond repentance. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rooted in Unrelenting unbelief. 
talk to many Christians who ask me, is it possible for a Christian to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And, you know, it's almost as if they're looking for some magical combination of words. It's not it, brothers and sisters. It's not a combination of words. It's words that come out of the heart that is utterly resistant to the person and work of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit who speaks of Christ to us no longer speaks of Christ to us. Because we are damned in our own unbelief. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit produces such a twisted view of reality that it calls good evil and evil good. That's exactly what describes the life. They looked at the Son of God. They said, you are evil. And he is the epitome of goodness, of righteousness, of holiness. And they call it a possessed. And friends, we are seeing this kind of blasphemous unbelief on a massive scale right now in an American culture that is so far gone. We have gone so far in our rejection of Christ that we are now redefining good as evil and evil as good. Friends, if it is possible for an entire nation to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then ours has done it. And this should scare us to death. Finally, let's move to scene three. The character of Christ's true family. Mark, having allotted time the family of Christ to travel from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now he visits the original episode, but this time he brings resolution. The family of Jesus had finally arrived from Nazareth, and verse 31 says, His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Mary was there. His brothers were there. Presumably his sisters as well. He had sisters. But Jesus didn't jump up to rush to the door and invite them in there. He stays seated. And he looks at those sitting at his feet. And in verse 33 he says, Who are my mother and my He's talking to people right around him. And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. But whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So the Mark mentions the fact that the crowd was sitting around Jesus two times in these short verses, verse 32 and verse 34. So he's making a point here that the true family of the Lord are those who sit at His feet, who listen to His voice, who submit to His teaching. His true family was not the ones knocking on the door outside who had made the journey to intervene to rescue Him from His own insanity. His true family was certainly not the religious faith leaders who should have been 
not the ones who said that he was demon-possessed. His true family was those who submitted to his lordship and demonstrated that submission through obedience to his father's will. Friends, where are you in this episode this morning? Are you on a journey to rescue Christ from the insanity of his claims? Do you have an opportunity to share the reason for the hope that is in you? Do you kind of shrink back from the radical claims when someone says, well, what about these people over here who don't believe in Jesus? It's interesting. Perhaps you've seen yesterday it was yesterday, Larry King Jr. died. And, uh, you know, he, he was uh, the, the CNN guy and he would interview these religious leaders. John MacArthur's been interviewed by him uh, many times. Well, several years ago, Larry King Jr. interviewed Joel Osteen. You know the thing about Osteen is the, uh, the smiling master. I'd like to know what it is. He's a prosperity preacher, pastor of one of the largest churches in America. Thirty thousand, I think they have a child in Houston. Larry King Jr. went straight to the point. He said, You're a pastor, you believe in Jesus. Joel Osteen says, Yes, I believe in Jesus. And Larry King said, Well, what about Jews or Muslims or people of another faith who maybe they don't believe in Jesus? Instead of saying, unless you repent, you will die in your sins. Unless you confess the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will die alienated from God and under his wrath for eternity. Joel Osteen says, well, when they start using, when a, when a preacher uses that word, watch out. Because he's about to try to weasel his way around something. Well, I, I don't know. I looked at the transcript from the interview. Joel Osteen said, I don't know four times in about five sentences. I don't know. I guess, you know, I've been, I've been to India with my father and his ministry, and I saw these people. They, you know, they, had, a, they had a sincere love for God. You know what? I guess that's just between them and God. And Osteen was attempting to rescue Christ from himself. Jesus said, I am the way. You will not get to the Father unless you go through me. Are you going to be the one who shrinks back from that bold, radical, embarrassing claim? Salvation is in His name alone, not in the name of our collective faiths. Like we heard this past week in the inaugural prayer. There, no God heard that prayer. Because there's only one God. And if you don't come to Him in the name of His Son, then He does not hear your prayer. 
stand fast to the truth that unless sinners bow the knee to Christ and trust in His righteousness alone, they will die in their sin. They will suffer under the eternal wrath of our holy God in hell. Does that make you uncomfortable? from his own claims, from his insanity. Or perhaps you, God forbid, perhaps you already so committed to your unrelenting unbelief. Like the scribes. By the way, scribes were not pagans. They were the faith believers. They were the people in the synagogue, in the temple, They utterly, finally rejected Christ and were guilty of the eternal sin. Is that you? If you're watching, is that you? Oh, friend, while there is breath in your lungs, huh, that gift that we take for granted every second, breath in our lungs, let us forsake our unbelief and run to Christ. Or are we like the crowd in his house this morning? sitting at his feet, listening to his voice through sacred scripture and submitting to his lordship of faith and obedience. Which scene do we find ourselves in this morning, friends? Do not leave this room today. Don't click away without finding yourself right here in this house in Capernaum, sitting at the feet of Jesus with his true family. I'm not going to call you up front. I'm not going to make you repeat a prayer, a sign card. Conversion is the business of the Holy Spirit. But I appeal to you right now to call on a holy God who is offended at your sin and plead the blood of Christ the forgiveness of your sin, not trusting in any goodness or merit that you might have in yourself because you have none. None of us do. Any goodness, any righteousness, any merit in us comes from Christ and Christ alone, friends. Forsake your sin, forsake your righteousness, and trust in Christ today. Let's pray.